The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to God's Word. We're in a, a series of looking at Peter's interactions with Jesus, how Jesus makes a disciple, case study Simon Peter. And so we'll look at these accounts, these encounters that, with Peter and Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus is showing Peter who he is. And we see his glory in these texts. And then there's, there's three parts to this passage here that we'll see. First is the final exam or the pop quiz which Jesus asks a profound question. It's the question of questions. Who is Jesus? And then we've got two other parts to this. Is that what is Jesus' mission? What did he come here on earth to do? And lastly, what is our mission? So let's give attention as we consider this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay or reward each person according to what he has done. Well, the title of the message is good Peter, bad Peter. Obviously, you can probably figure that out as to why. Peter couldn't have been more right in verse 16, and he couldn't have been more wrong in verse 22. In verse 16, he is called Petra, the rock, with his great answer that he gives, and we'll look at that in a second. But then he's addressed as Satan in verse 23, and he's told that he's a stumbling stone, a scandalon. How can Peter get it so right on the one hand and so wrong on the other? Maybe you're puzzled by that. Isn't that what often happens 
to us. We grasp that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, and yet somehow we still want to hold on to some control of our little kingdom, even though we know he's the king of the universe. We grasp and we know that Jesus told us that he clothes the lilies of the field, that he provides food for the birds of the air, and how much more value are we than the lilies and the birds, and yet we still find ourselves worrying how God is gonna provide for us when we feel hemmed in by our circumstances of life. We know a truth here, but the pill of truth hasn't been swallowed and digested by faith. And Peter is still arriving at the truth in this passage. He's one for three. If you're in baseball, that's pretty good these days. One for three. But one for three is not very good. He gets the first answer right on who is Jesus, but he gets Jesus' mission wrong and he gets his own mission wrong. And Jesus has to correct him on the last two. You see, we can get the first pill right. We can get who Jesus is and then we wanna use him for what we wanna turn him into and how he can help us how he can advance our kingdom, how he can advance our plans, how he can make us look better and help us. And so Peter has to see the glory of Jesus and take it all in before he's sufficiently humbled. Jesus is making a disciple of Peter here and he's making a disciple of us this morning through the lens of Peter. And we see Jesus' main lesson for his disciples to grasp is who he is. He wants them to see that. You think about what Jesus is trying to teach more than anything else in the Gospels is who he is. He is building faith. Discipleship 101 is learning how to grow in faith in who Jesus is. He comes to the disciples walking on the water while they're straining at the oars in the middle of the night. And he shows them that he doesn't need to part the sea to walk on dry land. He can just walk right on top of it. And when he gets into the boat and the storm ceases, what do they do? They worshiped him because they saw who he was. When he said, let down the nets for a catch, and he blew them away with how many fish were in the nets, Peter is blown away by the glory of Jesus. Well... Here, Jesus takes his disciples out of a Jewish region. He takes them up north, 25 miles to a Gentile region, steeped in pagan worship. This is a vacation resort kind of place. This is one you could actually look at some pictures on, online in Caesarea Philippi. is beautiful with the snow-capped mountain of Mount Hermon seen in the distance. And this is right at the base of that. And there's some waterfalls. And, and Jesus kind of takes them away. And he prepares them for this question. It's a two-question exam. And the answer to the second question is the most important question you will ever answer. Ever. The first question who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus is wanting some feedback. What are you guys hearing? Well, some say John the Baptist. Others are saying Elijah. Some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And if you think about it, these are incredible answers. 
and we just jump over them kind of quickly. I mean, imagine if, 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 you know, kind of bring it into our world. If Steph Curry was interviewed last night after scoring 36 points, which I didn't see, but, and, and he were to just say, who do you all say that I am? I mean, nobody asks a question like that, do they? I mean, do you, do you get the audacity that Jesus just says, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Like, Steph knows not to ask a question like that, but imagine if somebody said, well, some say Larry Bird, and some say Magic Johnson, and some say LeBron James, and some say Michael. That's pretty rare company, isn't it? To, if they were to answer with great accolades like that. But it would sure seem narcissistic to ask a question like that. Recently, Kim and I were watching the NFL draft together. We just had it on the background, and we were, and they, to, to bring the numbers up, this was in Nashville. I'm sure you all watched it, right? And they actually had great numbers this year with the NFL draft, because they did it in Nashville, and they brought some Nashville musicians to actually help with the NFL draft, which I thought was kind of hokey. Like, what does this country music singer really know about the NFL draft? Well, it got even kind of hokier when the lady from Good Morning America was doing the interview, and she, one of the interviewers, and she knows nothing about football. And, but Taylor Swift was coming on because to get the numbers up, she had a big reveal. And the big reveal, they bring her out, and this is between like draft picks in the first round. And they bring out Taylor Swift. And they ask Taylor Swift, well, what's the big reveal? You've been pumping this thing up on social media. And she's, she says, well, my big reveal is I have a new song and a new video. And so the lady says from Good Morning America, well, what's the name of the song? And she says, me, with an exclamation point. And, and the, girl from, the lady from Good Morning America was like a boxer had popped her with a, with a jab to the forehead because she was so struck by the narcissistic response that, and Kim and I just looked at each other and just started laughing like, she's serious. This is going to sell millions that me with an exclamation point. It is so unbelievably selfish. How could she be so focused on herself that it's shocking? Yet you read this and none of you thought that. When Jesus says, who do, you, who do they say the son of man is? That would be unbelievably narcissistic for anybody on the planet to ask the question unless somebody had come not from this planet. You see, it kind of begs a bigger question. Nobody laughs at this. Nobody laughed when I read this. Nobody thought, this is crazy. He is worthy to ask the question. And he's insulted by the answers. And the answers are the most impressive people ever lived on this planet. And Jesus is insulted by those answers. They are not worthy of him. Like Duncan says, he says, this is like coming upon Michael Jordan and seeing him play basketball. And you, and you say to Michael Jordan, you know, hey, we've got a pickup league in our neighborhood. And I, I think you'll be pretty good. Would you like to come out and play with us? How do you think Michael Jordan would respond to that? You know, imagine you, you come across a, a world-class musician and you tell him that once a year we have a coffee house at Shady Grove Presbyterian Church and that we really think, Darius Rucker, that you'll be pretty good. Maybe you could come to our, our coffee house. Would you want to play for us? 
How do you think Darius Rucker would respond to that? I think he would play at a bigger venue than our little coffee house. Well, some years ago, we had a few religious leaders from the Islamic Center of, of Maryland, which is over next to Church of Redeemer on 124. And I don't know if they were clerics or what their titles were, but they came over to meet with Tom Parker and I, and it was kind of a, a goodwill to build common ground and to, to work towards understanding each other's faith. And they wanted us to know when they sat down with us that they believed in Jesus. And they wanted us to know that they believe that Jesus is a prophet. And Tom Parker, one of my great moments of listening to Tom, he was so lovingly, graciously replied to them, you do realize that when you say that, that's offensive to Christians. And they seemed puzzled. And Tom went on to explain to them that we believe Jesus is much more than a prophet. He's the one that all the prophets were pointing to, that he is God's son. He's God in the flesh, and that he died for our sins, and he rose again on the third day, that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's so much more than a prophet. Our conversation kind of came to a halt at that point as we realized that we kind of had some pretty big differences in our theology. But I want you to get that this morning. Who do you say the Son of Man is? If he's just a prophet, that is not enough to save your soul from your sin. He came to save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus Christ. And that's not like, you know, my name is Charlie Bale. That, that last name, Bale, is a name that was given to me. It's a family name. Christ is not a family name. That wasn't given to Jesus as, you know, let me just know about Jesus, and, and I don't want to know theology. He's given a title of Christ. That means Messiah, anointed one. He is prophet, priest, and king. And as a priest, he comes on a mission to save us from our sin. And so I titled the message, Good Peter, Bad Peter, because Peter gets this first question right, doesn't he? I mean, this question isn't graded on a curve for us. You don't get an A, B, C, D, or F. It's simply pass or fail, with eternity hanging in the balance. Jesus says, who do you say? Who do you say the Son of Man is? And, Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one whom all the prophets have been pointing to from Genesis 3.15 on. He doesn't say, I, well, I think you're the Christ. I, I believe you might be the Christ. In my humble opinion, he doesn't say any of that. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus doesn't say, well, let me correct him and give a clarification. He blesses him. He gives him encouragement because he knows that Peter nailed the right question or the right answer to the question. And he tells him he can't take any pride for his answer. This didn't come from your family heritage. This didn't come from you. Didn't come from your bloodline. I can tell you right now, Peter, my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. 
and any of you that can answer the question and say he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and that you put your trust in Jesus and you're willing to go public and say he's my prophet, priest, and king, and I believe that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to, to him. He's the king and head of the universe. Well, God has to reveal that. You see, Peter answers the question and then Jesus gives the glory and says, God opened your eyes. God enabled you to see that. And how would Jesus know that? How would Jesus know that only my fathers in heaven could have revealed that? Because he's God's son. He knows. You see, well, we live in a day and an age where people will say, what really matters is that you just sincerely believe. And it really doesn't matter what you believe. I mean, Oprah Winfrey once said, there couldn't possibly be one way. And a lady in the audience yelled out, well, what about Jesus? And she said, does God care about your heart or does God care about if you call his, his son Jesus? As if the two are not related. They're absolutely related. That's her reply. Well, sincere. The governor of Virginia was really sincere and really respectful a few months back as he articulated this unbelievable radical view of infanticide. And that if the woman doesn't want her baby, it's her choice up to birth. And if, and if she wants to kill the child, she can. And if the, if the baby somehow comes out alive and hasn't been killed yet, but the mother doesn't want him, then we'll keep the child comfortable. Well, she, he said that on the radio in Virginia a few months ago. Many of you heard this. Very, very sincere. Very articulate. We'll keep the child comfortable. What? You have just espoused murder of an innocent human life, but because it's sincere, we're supposed to like take it as palatable. It wasn't very palatable. And there was an outcry. And then this uh, other spokeswoman was supposed to speak at some event recently, right after that, and there was gonna be so many pro-lifers there they had to cancel the event. There was definitely an outcry, thankfully. Well... I wonder if some of you saw The Old Man and the Gun, which recently is out on Redbox. It was a big, such a thrill in the movie theater. It didn't make it very long, obviously. It went straight to Redbox. But it's a true story based on a true story. I don't know how much of it's true or not. Has anybody seen this movie? Thank you, Kathy Harlow. All right. I'm really connecting with the audience here today. All right. So this is a spoiler. All right. So this is a story. It's Robert Redford and his swan song and he is a serial bank robber. He just cannot stop robbing banks. His dopamine is he has to have the lights of the cop lights chasing him, and that is just his thrill. And if he gets out of prison, he's just gotta go and rob banks. And he just can't stop robbing banks. Well, what's interesting is every bank that he robs, the police will come and they, they interview the people and they all say the same thing. He was so sincere. He was such a gentleman. He was so nice. He is the nicest bank robber ever. <laughs> and there's one lady, there's one scene, it's kind of the classic scene of the movie where it's a lady's, a teller's first day on the job. And he comes at gunpoint and sincerely robs her and she starts crying. 
And he starts to comfort her that it's okay. There's a first time for everything. (laughs) Now, we laugh because the cops knew that he was sincerely wrong and needed to be stopped and needed to be put in jail because he was sincerely wrong. So my point in all this to you is sincerity is not the main thing here. You can be sincerely right, you can be sincerely wrong, but you, you can't, you know, not everybody is right on this question. Who do you say that he is, the son of man? Peter was sincerely right in his answer. And any other answer is sincerely wrong. Sidney Baxter, Sidlow Baxter put it like this. Fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is the gospel. He did not merely come to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is different than all of the other prophets because all of the other prophets are prophesying about him they're all pointing to him he's the seed through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed he's the wonderful counselor the mighty god the prince of peace the everlasting father he's the one who's born of a virgin he's the one prophesied to be born in bethlehem he's the ruler of the tribe of judah he's the descendant of jacob or david who will always be on the throne and whose increase in rule and peace will have no end It's all pointing to Jesus, and Jesus says as much many times in the scriptures. When Bruce preached recently on John chapter four, and and the the, the woman in, Samaritan woman, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's no wonder she left her water bucket and went to town. The water bucket was all of a sudden insignificant. When Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion, he was brought before the high priest and the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Did not C.S. Lewis give that famous quote that he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And he said, if you'd gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. And if you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. And if you'd gone to Muhammad and said, are you Allah? He would have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you'd asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied remarks which are not in accordance with nature or in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic. We may in passing, we note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There's no trace of people expressing mild approval, like Jesus is just okay with me. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really were the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was a man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord of God. But let's not come with any patriotizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, this is what Peter claimed. He got it. Jesus then says to him, you are Peter. You're a rock. He's giving him a new name. His name is Simon. Now he's calling him Simon Peter. Peter is the, the masculine for rock. And then he says, upon this rock, Petra, the feminine, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now there has been more ink spilled over this passage and blood for that matter. One of the stories I was reading this week in the book Fair Sunshine it was about a young lady that all she had to do was to say that the Pope is the head over all matters ecclesiastical and ju judicial. You know, he's, he's head over the government. And she wouldn't do it. And this was in Scotland in 1685. Her name was Margaret Wilson. And so they, they tied her up in the water and the water starts to come in. And all you got to do is say that the Pope is the head over all matters. She wouldn't do it, so they put her head in the water. She wouldn't do it. They see one, they wanted her to pray and acknowledge the Pope, and she actually prayed for the Pope's salvation. That, that really enraged the... And they began to bring the water in, and they drown her. She was 18 years old, taking a stand that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. And for that stand, she gave her life. You see, <clears throat> the Catholic Church has developed their belief of the infallibility of the Pope, apostolic succession of the Pope being passed on from Peter to future Popes from this very passage, verse 18 and 19. Protestants, on the other hand, have often said the rock is referring to Peter's confession and not Peter himself. The reality is this, you can't separate Peter from his confession. Peter is the one who gets the new name. Peter is the one who receives the encouragement from Jesus. And it's Peter that the promise is given that upon this rock I'll build my church. And Peter, with the singular tense of use in verse 19, that the binding of loosing is gonna happen through Peter. So let's not try to get fancy and cute. Let's face the text as the text teaches us. God has a special commission for Peter, and it's Peter who's going to herald the gospel in Acts chapter two. And as he heralds it, there's gonna be binding and loosing and those who are set free and those who are bound. And 3,000 people are converted and added to the church. It's Peter who first preaches to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius's house, and the spirit is poured out even on the Gentiles who believed in Peter's message. And all of this is true. And yet there are at least at least eight reasons that I'll just rattle off quickly why we do not believe what the Catholic Church teaches about Peter. That they teach that, that our Lord conferred on St. Peter this place of honor and jurisdiction, first place in the government of the whole church 
and that the same spiritual authority has always resided in the popes or bishops of Rome as being successors of St. Peter. Well, what's the problem with that? As we look at the whole of Scripture, here they are. Jesus is the head of the church, not Peter. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that at everything, he might be preeminent. Number two, Peter goes instantly from being the rock to the stone of stumbling in a matter of two verses. So certainly Peter is not infallible, and yet the Catholic Church believes in the infallibility of the Pope. Well, the Pope didn't make it in this case, if that was the case, two verses before he's called Satan. You can't uh, separate Peter from his confession. The one elevates him as rock, the other demotes him to the (laughs) term of being called Satan. So you have to rule out infallibility right off the bat. Number three, the apostle says in Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not just Peter. Peter considers himself a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5. He doesn't say, I am the elder above them. He says he's a fellow elder. And he refers to all of us as living stones, himself included, and Jesus as the cornerstone in 1 Peter 2. And in 1 Peter 4, he says each of us has received a gift and we're to use it to serve one another. And if our gift is speaking, then to speak the oracles of God. And if he's the Pope, then he's the only one speaking the oracles of God. So 1 Peter alone gives us three reasons why he's not the head of the, the, head of the church. Four, the disciples asked Jesus who was the greatest and Peter's right there. All he has to say is Peter. What does he say? He holds up a child and says it's a little child. And then Paul rebukes Peter to his face in Galatians chapter two. Popes don't get rebuked by equals and therefore you have to conclude that Peter didn't think of himself as the Pope because he received the rebuke. Number seven, Peter has a say in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, but he speaks as one having a voice with James having the final word. So Peter, once again, is not playing the Pope trump card in Acts 15. He doesn't have the final say. James does. And then number eight is the keys are given not just to Peter, but to the church. We're told in Matthew 18, in in matters of church discipline, that Uh, if one refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. For I truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be bound in heaven. Those words were not just for Peter, but for the authority being given to the church. These are rabbinical, rabbinical terms of binding and loosing. And there were two schools of rabbis. One group would bind and the other group said they could loose. And what Jesus is saying about Peter is through the church going forward with the gospel is there's gonna be a binding and a loosing. Just as you're hearing the gospel this morning, it's either setting you free or it's condemning you. It's either light or it's darkness. It's either bringing life to you or it's bringing death. And my prayer is that it's bringing life. But D.A. Carson concludes on this, this text says nothing about Peter's successors, infallibility, or exclusive authority. These late interpretations entail insuperable exegetical and historical problems. He says after Peter's death, his successor would have had authority over a surviving apostle, John. What the New Testament does show is that Peter is the first to make this formal confession and that his prominence continues in the early years of the church, but he, along with John, can be sent by the other apostles and he's held accountable for his actions by the Jerusalem church. He's rebuked by, by Paul and so in short, he's the first among equals and, the, and on the foundation of such men, Jesus built 
his church. And so Jesus builds his church on Peter and his confession, but as soon as he makes the confession, and Jesus tells him now, okay, the disciples got who I am. Now I need to tell them about my mission. And my mission is gonna be to go and to die for a people. And he tells them he's gonna suffer, that he must suffer and be rejected. And these things are gonna happen. That Jesus' sovereign plan is to save us from our sin by going to a tree and suffering these many things. So Peter calls time out. Time out. Jesus needs some coaching. Time out. Got to do some one-on-one counseling, some one-on-one tutor. And he pulls Jesus aside and he literally says, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This shall never be. Are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Peter is soundly rebuked as we need to be continually rebuked ourselves because he's setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. And when you set your mind on the things of man rather than the things of God, you become a stumbling stone. And Peter becomes a stumbling stone of promoting this human agenda over God's sovereign plan and now he's acting like the devil and Jesus actually addresses the devil as he sees the devil trying to use Peter's human wisdom as a temptation against Jesus to somehow escape the cross, which is our only way of salvation. You see, Jesus isn't just the prophet, he's our priest. And this passage is all about Jesus' voluntary suffering. And that's the part that Peter choked on. Peter could only envision Jesus being the lion and not the lamb. He he must have not have been listening carefully when Jesus said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he's the one who's gonna be oppressed and afflicted, yet open not his mouth and be led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's to be taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken is the prophecy of Isaiah 53 about Jesus. But Peter missed it, and Jesus has to correct him. And then he has to correct him with one last big correction, that Peter, this isn't just gonna happen to me. Now I've got a new agenda for you, the followers. If you're gonna follow Jesus, that we are to come, take up our cross and follow him, and no longer live for our agendas, No longer think that the universe revolves around us. We surrender the lordship of ourselves and we acknowledge King Jesus is head over all and that we embrace his lordship over our life to go and serve and lay down our life for others. And Jesus makes a promise here that's just staggering. He says the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against the church. You see, When Jesus returns and thousands of years have gone by, there's not gonna be Apple, there's not gonna be Microsoft, there's not gonna be Amazon, there's not gonna be Uber, none of these great companies that are trying to build a name for themselves. There is only one institution that's going to last, 
And it's like these birthday candles that you blow again and again and you just can't blow them out. The church has been tried to be been snuffed out in countries around the world for thousands of years. And they snuff it and they snuff it and they snuff it. And what happens? It keeps lighting again. And matter of fact, when you snuff out one, two get lit. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's right here in the most pagan spot in a Gentile region saying that his gospel is going to go to the ends of the world and he's going to make worshipers from every tribe, nation, and people. It's the only institution that will last. He's building his church. Whose church is this? We talk about people being church planters. Church planters. I mean, we use the term, but who's building the church? Jesus says, I will build my church. It's his church and he will build it. And he's going to build it. And I want you to be a part of it. To labor in the church, to lay down your life for the church, to serve the church, to serve the people. As Jesus calls us to love the church. This is the first time the word church is introduced in Matthew. And he's making this great promise that it's not about a building, it's not about a building program, it's about a people that he's making from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Let's pray.